Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. The Jewish holy day of Rosh Hashanah is nearly upon us. This morning I want to share with you some thoughts about Rosh Hashanah and in particular focus on two biblical readings that form the essence of the Rosh Hashanah service. So let us begin by trying to ask ourselves, how did Rosh Hashanah become New Year's Day? In the Torah, the beginning of the year was clearly set in the spring. So what happened? Let me begin with this thought. The effort to strike a balance between particularistic loyalty to a Jewish religion and a nation and a more universalistic commitment to human community played itself out in the struggle to set a date for the beginning of the Jewish calendar year. The two possibilities were Nisan, the Hebrew month of Nisan, the month of Passover, and the Hebrew month of Tishrei, a month of what is now known as the festival of Rosh Hashanah. In the Torah, the beginning of the year was clearly set at the first of Nisan in the context of the description of the first Passover in Exodus 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall mark for you the beginning of the month. It shall be the first of the months of the year for you. This new year celebrated the creation of the Jewish nation through the redemption of the Israelites from Egypt. Nisan, as the first of month, coincided with the beginning of Jewish national history. But it is surprising that the Torah made no mention of the new year at the first of Tishrei, which today is so central to the Jewish religious experience. To the Torah's reference to one Nish, in fact, the Torah's reference to the first of Tishrei is sparse altogether. Des, uh, describing a holiday characterized primarily by the blowing of a shofar, a ram's horn. This is what the Torah says. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a complete rest, a sacred occasion commemorated with loud blasts. You shall not work at your occupations, and you shall bring an offering by fire to the Lord. The name Rosh Hashanah is not mentioned nor is there a reference to its function as a day of judgment or anniversary of the world's creation. Yet, by the period of the Mishnah, the second century of the Common Era, the outlines of today's Rosh Hashanah holiday are clear, and discussions about the prayers of Rosh Hashanah appear as early as the teachings of the schools of Hillel and Shammai, which date to the first century of the Common Era. The Mishnah of Rosh Hashanah specifically defines Rosh Hashanah's New Year status. The first, I'm quoting from the Mishnah, the first of Tishrei is the beginning of the year, four years, sabbatical cycles and the jubilee, end of quote. 
Although the functions of this new year relate primarily to the agricultural cycle and the beginning of the new harvest, the Mishnah also begins to assign to it conceptual and theological meaning. On Rosh Hashanah, all human beings pass before him as troops. As it says, this is again from Mishnah, Rosh Hashanah. Now quoting Psalm 33, the Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all mankind. From his dwelling places, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the heart of them all, who discerns all their doings. Sometime between the reception of Torah and the acceptance of Torah and the codification of the Mishnah, the autumn new year gained ascendance, now transformed into a new celebration, a major celebration. And the Nisan new year was left as a marker of the months and festivals in the calendar year. Although theories abound about the cause of this transition, the mechanics are lost in the web of historical change. The Talmudic rabbis analyze the text of the Torah as they argue about when the new year should begin. Yet different sets of verses yield different answers. Historians cite evidence from the ancient Near East looking at the New Year celebrated by neighboring peoples, but nothing is conclusive. Others, of course, look to archaeology for support. But the truth of this transition from Nisan as the New Year to Rosh Hashanah as the New Year remains murky. It is true that some Semitic peoples considered the year to begin around the autumn harvest and the beginning of the rainy seasons, which both signified the start of the new agricultural year. And although the Torah never explicitly refers to an autumn New Year's, some scholars see in the Torah's apparent timing of the fall festival of Sukkot a small hint of a possible fall New Year. According to Exodus 23, the Feast of the Harvest, Sukkot, which closely follows Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, occurs Bitzat Hashanah, at the going out of the year, signifying the close of one agricultural year and the beginning of the next. Similarly, in Exodus, the Feast of the Ingathering is said to occur to Kufat Hashanah, the turn of the year. Further evidence of the fall as the beginning of the agricultural year in Palestine is a calendar from the 10th century BCE found at Tel Gezer, which begins with two months of the ingathering. Scholars for looking for biblical precursors of today's full-blown Rosh Hashanah also look to the text of Nehemiah 8. Although it never refers to the New Year celebration, Rather, it describes Ezra reading the book of the law before the people on the first day of the seventh month, certainly different from that which is described in the book of Numbers. Some wonder, given this accumulation of hints about the importance of the first of Tishrei, whether this year was a new year in biblical times and the Torah covered it up because uh, pagan connotations of the day were too strong to acknowledge it as the Jewish New Year. Other scholars, however, believe that the existence of the pagan New Year celebrations 
influence the timing of the Nissan and Tishrei New Year's, yet the evidence remains contradictory. The Akitu festival that celebrated the Babylonian and Sumerian New Year's generally occurred in the spring. Although there is some evidence of autumnal Akitu festivals, the scholar Tadmor argued that in the biblical period, Nisan was the new year in the kingdom of Judea, while Tishrei was the new year in the northern kingdom of Israel. In the Qumran literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Nisan is always the new year. Well, given that history, it should be clear that regardless of how the fall festival came to be, the new year, Rosh Hashanah, the fall festival, became the central spiritual new year of the Jewish people. And during that essential primal new year, two Torah portions are read. Actually, two biblical portions are read. One from the book of Genesis and one from the book of Samuel. With the time remaining this morning, I want to introduce you to these two Torah portions and some interpretation. So, the Torah reading for the second day of Rosh Hashanah in traditional synagogues, but in liberal synagogues is read on the first day because they only celebrate one day, is from Genesis 22. The binding of Isaac, known in Hebrew as the Akedah. It is one of the best known and most troubling stories in all of Torah. In it, God orders Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac on Mount Moriah. Abraham agrees, but then is stopped at the last minute when God sends an angel who tells him to sacrifice a ram instead. References to this story appear throughout the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. Even the shofar, the ram's horn, blown on the holiday, is said to be a reminder of the Akedah and how Isaac was spared. The story appears in Parashat Vayera, the fourth portion in the annual Torah reading cycle. Now, let me give you a summary of this powerful story, and then let us make the connection to Rosh Hashanah. Genesis 22 begins in the following way. And it came to pass that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Hineni, here I am, replied Abraham. God said, take, I beg you, your only son, the son whom you love, Isaac, and get yourself to the land of Moriah and offer him on one of the mountains. So Abraham did as he was told, journeying with his, with his wood for the offering and with his son and his servants to the place that God had told him. On the third day, Abraham and Isaac left the servants and took the wood for the offering, took some fire and a knife, 
and the text tells us they went, both of them together. Isaac spoke to his father, Avraham, Avi, my father. Abraham said, Hineni bini, here I am, my son. You have the fire and you have the wood. But where is the lamb for the offering, asked Isaac. The response, God will see that we have a lamb for the offering, my son. They came to the place of which God had spoken, and Abraham built the altar and arranged the wood and bound Isaac his son and placed him upon the altar, upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And suddenly an angel of God called to him from heaven and said, Avram, Avram, Abraham, Abraham. Hineni, said Abraham, here I am. And God said, do not stretch your hand toward the lad, nor do the slightest thing to him, for now I know that you are God-fearing, and do not withhold from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in the hedge. Abraham took the ram and offered it up as an offering in place of his son. Abraham named this place God Sees. An angel of God called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself have I sworn, says God, because you have done this thing and not withheld me from your son, your only son, that I will bless you without fail, and without fail multiply your descendants as the stars in the heaven, as the sands that are on the seashore, and your seed shall inherit the gate of its enemies. And all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves through your seed as a consequence of your having hearkened to my voice. This episode ends in the following Monday when manner. Then Abraham and Isaac and the servants returned to Beersheba. How weird. This is Abraham, who you and I know of, as Abraham who challenges God at Sodom and Gomorrah. Who says to God at Sodom and Gomorrah, shall the source of justice not judge wisely? And here he is silent. Simply follows orders. Abraham's challenge to God regarding this destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and Abraham's submission to God's command to sacrifice Isaac provide an insight into the nature of the Jewish covenant. In the first story, Abraham questions, argues, and convinces God to back down from an extreme position. The radical assumption underlying Abraham's protest is that God must follow a standard of justice comprehensible to Abraham and all humanity. This suggests that human judgment over and against God is valid and that the human partner plays an active role in determining what is right and wrong. Yet the same bold challenging Abraham demonstrates absolute submission before God's terrifying command to sacrifice his son. Though this surely violates the same sense of justice. 
Only after Abraham has proven he will obey his, this command is a ram provided in Isaac's place. This story suggests that there is no alternative to the acceptance of God's will and that the human role in the covenant is submission. The inclusion of both stories teaches that the Jewish way cannot be reduced to either perspective. By itself, the deeply autonomous thrust of Sodom and Gomorrah story would lead to a Judaism in which the human conscience would eliminate anything that offended it. God, Torah, the tradition would become synonymous with whatever human beings want. Every person would decide what is right and wrong. By reducing the Jewish way to the deeply submissive thrust of the Akedah, the story that I've shared with you this morning, would lead to a fanaticism in which no act, no matter how repugnant, could be ruled out. A mindless obedience enslaving the human being and destroying his or her dignity. The genius of the covenantal way, of the Jewish covenant, is that these two powerful principles, autonomy and heteronomy, are yoked together and held in creative tension. By challenging and submitting to God, and the tradition are authentic covenantal responses to the dilemmas of Jewish life. The covenantal question addressed to each generation, and even each person, is when to act in which way. I think that is a wonderful um, understanding of why the Akedah is read on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah reminds the Jewish people of the two dynamics of the covenant. We are both in relationship to God and we offer our total uh, submission to the wisdom of God. And at the very same time, we recognize that we are partners with God. That is what Rosh Hashanah is about. Our covenantal responsibilities to God and our partner with God. These are the essences of our story. But let us then focus on the ram. What is the meaning of the ram? Notice what the text says. That Abraham lifted his eyes and saw something that he had not noticed before. A ram caught in the briars and thickets. Perhaps Abraham was so focused on this dreadful and apparently inescapable task that he couldn't see what was there, what was right in front of his eyes. Abraham had to redirect not only his hand away from his son, but also his perception away from the idea that God really demanded such an awful sacrifice. In this kind of reading of the verse and in the Midrash upon it, the miracle is that Abraham is able to undergo a change of spiritual understanding just in time 
and see alternatives just at the moment he is caught by the horns in a horrible situation. In reinterpreting the verse, it isn't so much about long-lived mountain sheep as it about our own potential to grow in understanding and insight, finding miracles to be grateful for even under the direst circumstances. When the tradition says that the ram was always there, the thought is completed by the part of the verse that says Abraham lifted up his eyes. The ram was always there in the sense that God never intended for Abraham to really kill Isaac, but for Abraham to develop the ability to see the ram, to perceive the better choice, to, can be understood as deeper and yet more of an everyday kind of miracle. Think of the dying person who finds peace in the faith that their loved ones will carry on as values. Think of the addict who, after years of struggle, finds the strength to choose life. Think of the workaholic who realizes that time with family is a truer treasure than overtime pay. Think of the friendships and marriages that have been reconciled when both parties choose forgiveness over pride and nursing the grudge. Think of the person with juicy but destructive gossip just on the tip of their tongue, who yet refrains from the momentary pleasure of tearing somebody else down a bit. The ram is always there. The possibility for repentance on Rosh Hashanah is always there. An interesting understanding of the Akedah. And now let us turn to the Haftarah. Some of you will remember from previous shows that the Haftarah is the prophetic reading offered on Shabbat and holiday mornings. On two fast days, Yom Kippur and Tisha B'Av, a Hafer Torah is recited both morning and afternoon. While the Torah reading cycle proceeds from Genesis through Deuteronomy, covering the entire far of books of Moses, only selected passages from the prophets make it to the Haftarah cycle. A cluster of three or four blessings, depending on the occasion, follows the Haftarah. Their call for prophecy to be fulfilled and for God to restore the Jewish people to Zion serve as a finale to the full set of the day's scriptural readings. The rabbinic literature does not discuss the origin of the practice of publicly reading from the prophets in a formal cycle. We might look to the liturgical setting of the Haftarah as some sort of proof, but truthfully, we don't know. It was, and it may be, that the Haftarah passages, the prophetic passages, were were originally selected arbitrarily by randomly opening a scroll of one of the prophetic books and reading whatever happened to find, or at least the choice was not predetermined by tradition. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke, in which Jesus is visiting a synagogue in Nazareth on Shabbat, He is handed a scroll of Isaiah and asked to open it and read from it. Jesus is reading a Haftarah, it seems, and some scholars interpret the verses to mean that the place at which the reader was to begin and end was not indicated to him. But others disagree. 
But however, the Haftarot were chosen, and there's more that can be said about that. There are two Haftarot, which are particular to the holidays. One on Rosh Hashanah and one on Yom Kippur. The book of Jonah is read on Yom Kippur afternoon. And Samuel 1 is read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah. It tells the story of Hannah, a childless woman who turns to God in desperate and intense personal prayer. Since Hannah's story highlights the power of prayer, it is an appropriate selection for a day when Jews traditionally spend a good time, portion of their time at prayer and synagogue. Let me read to you a bit of this story. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanan, son of Jeraham, son of Elu, son of Tohu, son of Zufa, an Ephemite. He had two wives, one named Penina and one named Hannah. Penina had children, but Hannah was childless. One day, Elkanah offered a sacrifice he used to give portions to his wife, Penina, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give one portion only, though Hannah was his favorite, for the Lord had closed her womb. Moreover, her rival, Penina, to make her miserable, would taunt her that God had closed her womb. This happened year after year. Every time she went up to the house of the Lord, the other would taunt her, so she wept and would not eat. In her wretchedness, she prayed to the Lord, weeping all the while, and she made this vow. Lord of hosts, if you will look upon the suffering of your maidservant and will remember me and not forget your maidservant, and if you will grant your maidservant a male child, I will dedicate him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head, she promises a Samaritan. Now Hannah was praying in her heart, and only her lips moved. But her voice could not be heard. So Eli, the high priest, thought she was drunk. Eli said to her, How long will you make a drunken spectacle of yourself sober up? And Hannah replied, Oh, no, my lord, I am a very unhappy woman. I have drunk no wine or other strong drink, but I have been pouring out my heart to the Lord. Then go in peace, said Eli, and may God of Israel grant what you have asked of him. As you know, she eventually conceives this powerful story about the intentionality of prayer serves as the seal on the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. All day long, Jews ask forgiveness. Jews ask their God to sign them up for a new year filled with hope and possibility, and they do that through the beauty of song and the beauty of prayer. And in the midst of this comes the mournful singular prayer of Hannah the woman who turns to God in desperation. Both the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, is about one person's faith, Abraham's, and the Haftarah about Hannah, one person's faith as well, and Rosh Hashanah in the midst of the assembly, one person's faith supersedes everything else. 
For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you good morning. You can listen to a rebroadcast of this on iTunes Podcasts or on the website of CHRI. Shalom. Shalom.